Tonight is our first night of our revival nights, and I hope that you came with expectation, and I hope you came with faith and such an anticipation to see what God is going to do uh, in our time together. But I also hope that you don't get surprised, because sometimes when we often come together, when God shows up, when His presence is so tangible in the room, we act surprised like we didn't just invite Him to walk into our meeting. And I mean, if the purpose of the meeting is that we long for Him to show up, then that should be the norms. Amen? People being healed in our gatherings, that should be the norms because when God shows up, things begin to happen. People being set free and being delivered, that should be the norms because when God steps into the room, things begin to happen. People boldly declaring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that should be the norms because when God steps into the room, things begin to happen. People just catching a heart for the lost, that should be the norms. Because when God steps into the room, things begin to happen. Revival begins to happen. Let's pray. God, would you render the heavens? And this evening, God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, thank you for your presence here. God, I just hide myself behind the cross. And I pray, God, that as I minister this evening, Lord, that it'll be you. Lord, we didn't come to hear from a man. God, we came to hear from you. And so we thank you, God, for your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Revival comes from the root word uh, revive. It means to live again. It means to return or uh, restore to consciousness or life. And in other words, revive means bringing to life that which was previously alive, meaning it used to be alive, so it's dead, and we've got to bring it back to life. And the reason you revive something, Haley basically preached my message, the reason you revive something is because it is going through a state of decline, and so you bring it back to life. When a sports person is running around on the field and they're doing a great job, you don't ever see the medical team run onto the field and try to exercise CPR on the sports person. The reason they don't do that is because they're they're alive, they're well, and they're running the game, and they're doing really, really good. They're not in a state of decline. There's no need to revive that which is flourishing and fruitful because it is alive and doing well. There's no need to revive that which is working well and growing because it'll continue to grow and work. But when something begins to fade and decline and wither and die, it is at that point that you begin to realize that it needs reviving. When you place a bunch of flowers into a vase and you leave them there without any water, the flowers will begin to wither and die because they have no water to pull from. Nothing in the vase is going to be able to revive the flowers. Now, if you were to fill the vase with water, the flowers would begin to revive because the presence of the water in the vase brings about revival for the flowers. And so they start to look fresh again. They're going through revival. And so when we say, Lord, we need revival, what is it that we are asking for? When we say, Lord, we want revival in Manurua, what do we mean by that? When we put together nights like this called Revival Nights, what are we hoping to see? What is it that we are wanting to happen? Because to ask God for revival is to come to the realization that we are in a state of decline. To pray for revival is to assume that we're not as alive as we used to be because to revive something is to bring it back to life. Many great scholars of the word, they've come up with so many different theological definitions of what revival means. And here are some of them. Revival is God's quickening visitation of his people 
touching their hearts and deepening his work of grace in their lives. Another scholar says that revival is a sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. Another scholar said that revival is that which changes the moral climate of a community. Another scholar says that revival is the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. Another scholar said that revival is a community saturated with God. And another scholar said that revival is the reviver in action. All of these are amazing definitions. You see, I'm not an expert on the subject of revival. And so I'm not here tonight to try and give you a theological dissertation about what revival is, what it looks like, and what happens, and what's, how it's supposed to go. But here's what I do know. Revival happens when God steps onto the scene. That which started to wither and die and fade away comes back to life when God steps onto the scene. All throughout Scripture, I've read story after story after story of things shifting, things changing, things happening supernaturally, all because God stepped onto the scene. And I want to make that perfectly clear tonight as we start Revival Nights. The revival doesn't happen because of a man. Revival doesn't happen because of great teaching or our preaching or our amazing stage setup or our lights or our singing or our music or our programs. Revival happens because God basically steps onto the scene. Because you can have all of the gifting in the world. You can have all of the talent in the world, all of the ability in the world, but it isn't the presence of your gift or your talent or your ability that is going to bring revival. It is the presence of God that is going to bring revival. But you see, if we want revival, we must position ourselves. We must posture ourselves. We must prepare ourselves to see revival. Tonight, I want to share a few thoughts from a text that I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 15, it says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let me give you some context tonight. It's important for you to understand that this particular verse was written to the people of Israel who made a covenant with God. A covenant that said that if they kept God's law, they would stay in the land that God had given them and they would prosper. But if they broke God's law, God would send drought and difficulties and the people of Israel would be taken into exile. This verse continues to serve as one of many reminders to the world of why the children of Israel were taken into exile. And so we have a man by the name of Solomon who built the temple. Upon completion of the build, he dedicated the temple to the Lord and he prayed. And this is what he, the Bible says. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. That sounds like the Lord stepping onto the scene. Amen. The Bible goes on to say that Solomon and the people of Israel 
offered sacrifices to God. They continued to dedicate the temple to God. There was singing. There were trumpets sounding. There was music. There was grand celebration. They continued to celebrate for seven days. And on the eighth day, they ended the celebration. Solomon sent them home. And the Bible says that they were joyful and glad. The story goes on to say, that one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and here is what God said. 2 Chronicles 7, 12 to 16. God is saying to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues, plagues among, among you. Then if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open, my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. God is letting Solomon know, I've heard your prayer, but I need you to know that if at any time you start to notice a decline in your surroundings, if at any time you start to notice that what you have going around you is starting to wither and die and, 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 and die around you, humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, and repent from your sinful ways. Because as you do, I'm going to step onto the scene and bring restoration to you. I'm going to step onto the scene and bring healing for you. I'm going to step onto the scene and bring revival on the land. Our text tonight was written to the people of Israel. But I believe that there are principles that we can apply in our lives today as we look to God for revival. The first thing I want to say is humility. The Lord said to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves. Humility is not humiliation. Humility is not humiliation. Um, and there's an author that puts it this way. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so I want to ask you tonight, how do you know that you have humility? Here's how you know. You know you've got humility when you have no issues focusing on others and not yourself. You know you've got humility when you have no issues celebrating the success of others. You know you've got humility when you are more interested in winning people and not winning arguments. You know you've got humility when you're not out here trying to prove a point by arguing with someone. You have no issues letting people know that they are more important to you. You would gladly jump in to help someone on the street. You would gladly give up your resources to anyone who needs help, even if they don't know you or even if you don't know them. You are compassionate and forgiving when others do you wrong. You know you've got humility when you realize that God knows the motive in someone's heart. He's the only one that knows. You are able to acknowledge where you went wrong. You know you've got humility when you admit that you need God's help. Humility was the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee who went to pray. Jesus tells a story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He was a studier of the word, and the other was a tax collector. And tax collectors, they were frowned on back in the day because they, they were considered to be sinners. And so this Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Here's what he said. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, 
sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector because I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. This Pharisee is not only standing alone as if to communicate his self-sufficiency, but his gratitude is based on what he's done and what he believes he is not. But you see, the tax collector stood at a distance. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Guess who of the two returned home justified before God? It was the tax collector. And Jesus goes on to say, Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, just like the Pharisee, we often get so caught up thinking that humility is an outward facial expression. We get caught up thinking that humility is this idea of rich people wearing poor people's clothes. Don't get caught up in the facade of humility. You see, we have a tendency to get caught up in the false humility and we act and we put it on like the, like the way that the actors and the movies do. We jump from costume to costume to costume, from scene to scene to scene in an attempt to show that I'm humble. But true humility isn't an outward thing. True humility is an inner awareness of your own frailties and realizing that everything you've got is a gift from God and therefore you are dependent on Him for everything. Sometimes we often think that God is going to step onto the scene of our lives and bring restoration and bring healing, bring breakthrough, bring revival because of how well we perform when really He does it because of mercy. It's a dangerous place to be in when you start to use that which you do as currency to get God to do what you want Him to do. That isn't humility. That's control that's rooted in pride. You see, when God speaks to Solomon and says uh, that Israel will need to humble themselves, God is dealing directly with the area of pride. God is wanting Solomon and all of Israel to know that their restoration and revival depends upon humble submission and repentance. Too often, we've missed an opportunity to see God step onto the scene because our pride has gotten in the way. And so we labor in vain. We labor away in our strength. We labor away in our own understanding and left to our own de devices. We begin to do that which is right in our own eyes. And in doing so, we lead ourselves to a tragic end. But if we really want God to step onto the scene and bring restoration and revival, we ought to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility that acknowledges, Lord, I am nothing without you. Let me ask you tonight, when was the last time that you actually stopped in the midst of all that you are doing in your life and put on humility? When was the last time that you just stopped and stilled your heart before the Lord and said, God, I realize that I was nothing when you found me. And I'd be nothing without you. And without your power in my life, I can do nothing. Turn to the person next to you and say, stay humble. <laughs> you can say it to them really good. Stay humble. <laughs> Here's the second thing. Hunger. <clears throat> the Lord said to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, pray and seek my face. Praying and seeking God's face demonstrate a deep hunger and yearning for God. And so God is saying to Solomon, I need to know that you hunger for my presence. 
I need to know that you have profound dependence on me, so much so that you can't help yourself but get to praying, that you can't help yourself but get to seeking my face. You see, when you crave a particular type of a food, you seek it out. You go hunting it down. You go looking through all sorts of restaurants and you try to find it. You would even stand in the queue for hours to get this thing that you are craving because you have a particular craving that can only be satisfied by the, this very specific food that you are hungry for. This craving, this hunger, this longing, and this desire that we have for revival can only be satisfied by God himself. Because it isn't about methods or the three steps to revival. This isn't about, uh, about do this and then revival will happen because we can pray and never have revival. We can gather and yet never see revival. But what it is that I'm trying to help you to understand tonight is that revival won't come to those who are seeking revival. Revival comes to those who are seeking God. And so in the same way that God challenged the people of Israel to pray and seek his face, I believe that as the church, it's time that we get to praying and seeking God's face. Because prayer is an acknowledgement of our helplessness and clinging to God until he moves with power. The truth is prayerlessness leads to self-reliance. And have you noticed that the more that we rely on ourselves and our methods, the more of a decline that we feel? the more tired we become, the more stagnant that we become, the more we rely on our gifts and our talents and our strength, the more of a disconnect that we feel between us and the presence of God. But we ought to bring ourselves before God and say, we surrender our gifts, we surrender our talents, we surrender what we think we know, we surrender ourselves, we humble ourselves and we express our hunger for God through prayer and seeking God's face. You know, our faces, they say a lot about who we are. We are able to recognize people uh, by looking at their faces. We are able to tell whether this person is happy, that person is sad, whether that person is mad, and whether this person is scared uh, just by looking at their face. And also, uh, our, our inward expressions are often expressed out, outwardly on our face. You know, have you ever met anybody who had that face that had like, was like angry vibes? They're like, you know, and you're like, oh, are you all good? And they're like, yeah, no, this is just my normal, like my normal face. And then you go on to find that there was like, that they were actually really, really angry. Or have you met um, someone and they are a time and a half, their facial expressions are dramatic. Their eyes are always filled with joy. Their countenance is just warm. And you realize that they are absolutely passionate and just love, just love life. You see, in biblical times, a person's face represented the entire person, their character and their personality. You see, when we seek God's face, we are choosing to get to know who he is, his character, his nature, his personality. When the Bible talks about God shining his face towards us, it is an expression of God's love, his goodness and blessing on us, but also it's an expression of his nearness to us. In Hebrew, the word for face is actually better translated uh, into the word presence. And so when God is saying, seek my face, he is saying, seek my presence. Seek my presence. Revival doesn't come to those who are seeking revival. It comes to those who are seeking God. The third and final point for us tonight is this, repentance. The Lord said to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. God spoke to Solomon and God said, if you are wanting restoration and healing for the land, you need to 
turn from your wicked ways. You need to turn from your sin. You need to repent. And that can be a really heavy subject to talk about. And so I don't need to try and explain this with eloquent words and vocabulary. I believe God is saying to us, turn from the things that create barriers between us and him. Turn from the things that are going to cause you to get ahead of God's plan and get in the way of God's plan. God is saying, turn from the belief that you know better than me. God is saying, turn from seeing one another as your enemy. Turn from seeing conversations as debates to win or lose. Let me tell you something about repentance tonight. Repentance is when you are going south on the murder way and then recognizing that you actually need to go north. <laughs> repentance is not just thinking that you need to change directions. Repentance is not just watching everybody else go down the same direction as you and thinking, man, I wonder if these people are all going in the wrong direction too. Repentance is looking for the next exit, getting off the exit, crossing over, and then getting back onto the other side of the road and going back home. <laughs> That's what repentance is. It's turning the other way. You see, once the turn has been made and repentance uh, has been accomplished, you may still be 20 miles further out away. You might be discouraged because you've gone 20 miles in the wrong direction or even 20 years in the wrong way. And this is where so many people get stuck. And so they think, you know what, since I'm already out 20 miles this way, I'm just going to keep going this way anyway. Since I've already messed up, I'll just keep on going this way. But let me tell you that when taking a trip, the ride coming back home always seemed shorter than the ride going. You see, because there's something about coming home that just shortens the feeling of the distance, even if it means that the actual distance to cover is exactly the same. You see, God said to Solomon, tell my people, if they want restoration in their land, there needs to be humility. There needs to be a hunger for my presence. There needs to be repentance. And I just wonder what it would be like for the church to rise up in this time where everything around us is in a state of decline, a time where the world is in a constant turmoil. I wonder what it will be like for Elam Christian Center Manurewa to seek God by humbling ourselves, expressing hunger for God through prayer and seeking His face and repentance. If I can ask the singers to join me on stage. You see, the thing about this entire message that I shared tonight is that it all started from the prayer of one man, Solomon. Solomon prayed to God and he dedicated the temple to the Lord. After he prayed, God responded and God said, I have heard your prayer. God was saying, now let me step onto the scene. I would like to close tonight by sharing a story I read the other day that someone from our church actually shared with me. Uh, it was in the 1940s, there was this professor by the name of uh, Edwin Orr, and he led a group of theology students to England. They visited so many different sites of great revivals that happened all throughout history. But one of the locations that they actually visited was this place called uh, the Epworth Rectory. It was the part-time home of John Wesley. And you see, John Wesley is a famous reformer who led a spiritual renewal movement in the 1700s, and he was a man of prayer who just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. 
And John Weasley interceded for revival to sweep all throughout England. And he even prayed that revival would sweep all throughout America as well. And so this Professor Orr, he takes the students through John Weasley's home and they went through the kitchen where John Weasley, you know, would make his meals and they spent time there. They went through the dining room, uh, you know, the place where John Weasley would invite his friends and families over. They even went to a particular room, uh, a place where John Weasley studied the Word of God and they even saw some of the books were still there. And finally, they come to John Weasley's bedroom. As they begin to make their way into his bedroom and across the room, they notice these two patches on the you know, the carpet that's just been completely worn out next to Wesley's bed. And they began to ask, what are these two patches? And so the professor responded and he said, those were actually the place where John Wesley would kneel and spend hours praying and praying and crying out to God for revival. And so Professor Orr goes on to say that it was such a special little moment for him and the students. But as their tour ended, they all jumped onto the bus and they're getting ready to go home. And so Professor Orr jumps on and he starts to count all the students and he notices that one of them is missing. So he comes off the bus, he goes into the house, he goes into the kitchen looking for this, this person that's missing. He goes into the, the bedroom, he goes into, uh, into the lounge and he goes into the study room and then he goes into the bedroom. And up into the bedroom, uh, there he was. He found the student kneeling on the worn out patches where John Weasley had prayed for revival. And this student was repeatedly praying and he was saying, do it again, Lord. Do it again. And would you do it with me? Start with me. And so Professor Orr leaned over and he placed his hand on this student's shoulder and he said, son, it's time for us to leave. Everyone's on the bus. And it was in that moment that Billy Graham got up slowly off his knees and joined the rest of his class on the bus. Through Billy Graham, God did it again. You see, that's all it takes. One person who was willing to say, Lord, do it again. And you know what, Lord, do it with me. All it takes is a person who was willing to pray and cry out to God, for revival. All it takes is one person who is willing to say, Lord, I'm humbling myself. I'm praying. I'm seeking your face. I'm repenting from my old ways. It takes one person who is willing to say, Lord, let revival start and let it start with me. If you're going to do it again, Lord, do it with me.